January 4th, 2024. And I feel that with the ceremonies today, we had a very, what I feel is a very lovely day, having celebrated Luang Pa Pasano's 50th bhikkhu birthday, and he ordained on January 4th, 1974, at Wat Plang Vipassana in Bangkok. And he ordained very quickly. He's in Anagarika probably for about 30 minutes and then became a bhikkhu. And uh, it's supposed to be a temporary ordination. And so uh, then he never left the robes. And uh, you just never know what kind of effect the Buddha's teaching is going to have on the heart and for those who see the importance of it, it's something which is wonderful, something which is brightening, something which is full of all these good things which make the heart radiant. Virtue, virtue which is highly inspiring, highly praiseworthy, full of integrity, and a path of practice which is unparalleled and leads to the complete ending of suffering and for just even, even if a few people just start to understand that, then that's wonderful. And really thinking about the Buddha Sasana, thinking about the nature of it and the true import of it. And when we think about it, this leads to a state we call Dhamma Piti. So that's uh, joy connected with the Dhamma. So it uh, can lead to a sense of deep inspiration, a very profound sense of purpose in our lives and a, a lot of meaning, the Buddha sasana, the Buddhist teaching, it's full of meaning and uh, full of just, uh, it has substance to it. It has substance to it and it is something which will inspire us to really get to the heart of things and really contemplate, really consider things and really get to the essence of things, and really uh, take a look and, and see what is, what is happening in the, in the heart and how can we train the mind, train the heart. So, and it's, it's not really easy to encapsulate really uh, the true worth, the true worth of the Buddha's teaching, how can we even talk about it? How can we encapsulate it? And what, we can, what can we do other than just practice it and just take it and just uh, import it into our lives? What else can we do? So that's really all we can do is practice it. Practice it and train and then, and just really develop the virtues develop the meditation, uh, develop the wisdom, 
that the Buddha is teaching about. And so not only the meditation, but reading the suttas, listening to teachings, everything we do, honoring elders, helping each other out, engaging in acts of selfless service in the community, seeing what needs to be done, cultivating generosity, being patient when things are difficult, cultivating patient endurance, uh, developing renunciation, uh, developing noble qualities such as being humble, humility, and just being kind to each other, and uh, things like bowing, paying homage, all of these things are really uh, training the heart. Yeah. This is how we train ourselves. We, we develop all of these noble qualities, and it's quite extraordinary. It's a far cry from just living a debauched, self-centered life. It's... it's uh, it's virtuous, it's wonderful, it's uh, marvelous. So just uh, bringing up, bringing some of those things to mind can be very, very helpful. And sometimes it's easy to forget, especially if we live in the monastery for a long time, uh, sometimes it's easy to forget these things that we're actually swimming in it and we're, we're steeped in it and this is, this is a great thing. This is a great thing. It's rare in the world. So we use this opportunity, uh, make use of this opportunity that we're a part of to make the most of it, however long or short of a period of time we might be here in the monastery, whether it's just a few months or a few years or a lifetime. Um, however we can, we just make use of it. And yes, it will occur that we get distracted, we lose the plot for a day, a week, a month, a year at a time, and we have to pick ourselves back up and we have to keep going. Uh, or we just, we just lose ourselves, we forget about the importance of all of this. And uh, I know I have before you know, forgotten about the importance, not brought to mind the importance of the Buddha's teaching, uh, the truth of the Dhamma teaching. It's it's kind of interesting when I think that, uh, yeah, just starting out, I had all this faith in the Buddha's teaching, but I didn't really believe it. I, whenever d strong desires came up, I really did have this thought. I've been thinking about this in the past week or so. Whenever strong desire, strong craving, or strong anger, resentment came up, I didn't really think it was harmful. Even when I read suttas that said, where the Buddha is saying, oh yeah, these things are very harmful. They burn the heart, and they're full of suffering and drawback. I didn't truly believe it. I didn't really believe it because uh, still in my heart of hearts, I saw, oh, those are those things are useful. There is some use to righteous anger. There is some use to getting irritated with somebody. There is some use to making issues and problems out of things. You know, there is some use to craving. It's not that bad. Yeah, maybe it's kind of bad, but it's not that bad. And it's, it's okay. Or just uh, 
just wanting to get my way with something. You know, even though the, even though the Buddha talks about letting go of things like dittimana, views and opinions, conceited views and opinions, then even though the Buddha talks about that and says that's absolutely necessary to let go of to end suffering, I uh, didn't really truly believe it. Or the Buddha talking about creating kama, uh, intentional action, and I didn't really think I didn't really think that bad intentional action would really result in kama that was that bad. Maybe it would be kind of bad, but but now now that I reflect on kama, and it, it's really this. You don't even have the Buddha's teachings without Kama. Kama, Kama is everything in the Buddha's teachings. Kama is the Four Noble Truths. Kama is dependent origination. Uh, Kama is Sangsara. It's uh, intention. So it's really all of these teachings linked together, and and it's a little bit easier for me to see after a couple of decades of practice. I still don't see it that clearly, but I can see that, wow, it really is real. It really is kind of scary how real it is. And nobody can take our kama away from us. The Kruba Ajans can't take our bad kama away from us. They can't take our good kama away from us either. We're going to reap the results of both of those things. So we get into this this idea of right view, get into this idea of right view. And I know this sutta was being talked about the other day, the Samaditi Sutta, the right view, the right view sutta. And Lumpur Cha would really emphasize that, uh, right view and sila, right view and sila. Teach that from the outset. So there is action, there is the result of action. Uh, that is right view. So I can see how, how my view was wrong starting out. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there kind of is action, and there kind of is the result of action, but not really. You know, it's not that bad. It's not like the Buddha was saying. It's not really so clear. But actually, it is. It's actually the Buddha's teaching is very clear. It's uh, really talking about true phenomena that take place but that are hard to see and not readily apparent. So the, the cultivation of right view is not just convincing ourselves that the Buddhist teachings are right. In a way, it's actually trying to prove that they're wrong, they're trying to prove them wrong in our, in our reflections and our contemplations. And when we do that, we find we aren't able to. This is something we'll be able to think about, consider during the winter retreat. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and right now, um, right now we can consider ourselves uh, to begin the retreat. I'll uh, ring the bell. Okay, now we're in winter retreat. So the, we're in the retreat, the retreat has started. Um, and uh, these are some of the reflections that we can be doing during the winter retreat. And uh, also would like to just uh, give some encouragement, give some, some inspiration. There tends to be a, a fair amount of inspiration right at the beginning of a retreat. And uh, I know I can get a bit excited 
the prospect of meditating more and having more space, having more time, and really recharging the spiritual batteries. And the, the winter retreat is a, a great time for that. It does go through different phases, and uh, we all should know and caution ourselves that three months is, is a long time, a quarter of a year. And so we're going to go through all sorts of, um, we might have all sorts of different types of happiness and suffering you know, during this winter retreat time. And we have sincerity, so we want to we want to do well, we want it to go well, but just to know that it's not going to be always good, it's not always going to be happiness, and uh, and it's not always going to be misery and suffering. So it's just gonna it's just gonna keep changing, uh, taking stock of things like what's the weather doing, you know, how is that connected with my mood, or. What time of year is it? What type of things happen to me at this time of year? What type of annual cycles do I go through? And then going through that in the space of the winter retreat. What sort of precepts do I have difficulty with? How can I work with that? How can I focus on those? And how can I do better in those areas? Uh, what kind of issues are coming up in my meditation practice? And how can I work with those what kind of suffering am I experiencing? How is, how is my practice of mindfulness of the body? How is my practice of metta or any of the other Brahma Viharas, Karuna, compassion, mudita, which I like to translate it as rejoicing, upeka, equanimity, serenity. How, is, how do I understand those things? How is the practice of those things? going, uh, how is the mind in general when I'm not meditating, you know, what is the mind like when I'm engaged in duties, what is the mind like if I get asked to do something and I'm already busy with something else, how does the mind react, uh, what is the mind like when uh, able to uh, have the meal, having the meal time throughout the daily schedule, how does the mind relate to the meal time, to the food. How does the mind relate to waking up in the morning? Uh, maybe we don't want to get up. How does the mind relate to just waking up early in the morning and the prospect of coming down for morning puja and then doing the chores at 6.30 and, uh, and then having, having the rest of the daily schedule to go by evening puja how are we in the evening? Are we a morning person or an evening person? How do we conserve our energy? How do we gauge our energy? Um, what kind of things do we think about when we're in the monastery? You know, what kind of proliferations are taking place? So all of these things can be looked at and observed, contemplated, considered in the space of the winter retreat. It's, it's nice to have the quiet time and, and in the starting on the January 6th, we're going to have more of a group schedule going on. So uh, group meditation through the day, and then we'll have a chance to see, you know, how, how is the mind relating to this? Uh, what does the mind do in certain situations? If I try to sit for a bit longer, how is it? Does the, do the knees hurt? Do the back, does the back hurt? Uh, what is it like doing walking meditation? We're going to have a lot of opportunities to do walking meditation 
So there's a, that encouragement really to do walking meditation in the Q&A with Ajahn Sik last night, he was recommending doing walking meditation. And walking meditation is, is wonderful because we actually get this opportunity to cultivate uh, cultivate peaceful mind and cultivate a meditation object and yet the eyes are open and we're walking, we're moving the body so the six sense bases are more engaged. They're much more engaged than if we're just sitting. And yet we can actually see how is the mind, how is the heart relating to that engagement with the six sense bases as sights come in, as sounds come in, as these things enter in, how do we engage with them? How are we, how are we relating to them? Are we becoming infatuated with the different objects of the senses or are we seeing them as an impingement and trying to push them away, thinking that that's practice, thinking that that's proper practice? So how are we relating to them? How are we, uh, or are we able to have what we call indriya sangwara, which is the balancing or the composing of the sense faculties? So in, the, in uh, these are the, the uh, indriyas, the faculties, how can we balance these things? The uh, sadha, the, the faith faculty, Virya, the energy faculty, uh, sati, the mindfulness faculty, uh, samadhi, the concentration or, or mental, the firm establishing of the mind faculty, uh, panyindriya, the, the wisdom faculty. These get, the, this is really the only time we chant the Abhidhammas when we do the funeral chanting like we did this evening. So we, we actually recite that to sadhindriyang Virindriyang, Satindriyang, Samadhindriyang, Panyindriyang. And then after that, there's this obscure word that's the uh, Ananyata Nyasami Tindriyang. That's the, uh, this obscure word, which Lumpur Sumedho actually, uh, he talks about that. That's the, uh, that's the knowing and not knowing. That's the uh, knowing yet not knowing faculty. And uh, Tanajan Dunn talks about that as well, so we can we can also take that as a contemplation if we like to reflect on the knowing. The it's the ananya, 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 ananya. How do you say it? <laughs> Anatanya anya sami tindriyang. Something yeah, something. It's kind of hard to say, but uh, the uh, knowing yet not knowing faculty, and. Uh, Tanajantan talks about that, and I, I can't claim to understand that, but I remember uh, it was very memorable. I believe it was 2016 was uh, his last visit, and uh, Tanajantan was teaching about this word, and that uh, when the faculties are balanced and there's a composure of the faculties, and then there's the knowing, there's the knowing uh, the knowing that knows things as they arise and pass away, and knows, the knowing is butho, the knowing knows in the present moment. That's what we say is butho, the knower or the knowing. And then yet there is also this faculty together with it. We bring in this faculty of not knowing, meaning we don't know 
what's going to happen. Things are uncertain. Things are unsure. Yet in the present, there is that presence and that knowing. And yet there is, there is, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't, we don't know in that sense. So that's the knowing and the not knowing merged, merged together. And he's talking about that as, uh, as Dhamma. So we can, we can contemplate that if we wish in terms of Sati Sampajanya uh, coming back to the mind dwelling fully in the present. We can use contemplations like that. Um, or we can cultivate just more of a faith-based practice where we do a lot of chanting and bring up energy in that way. We have these, this faculty of faith, the faculty of energy. When we believe that something is true, we'll put energy into it. We'll put that energy into it, and then that can lead. That will lead to mindfulness. So those indriyas are in a then they're in that order for a reason. So there's the faith or conviction that the practice works, that the Buddha's teaching is efficacious when followed, when practiced. And then there's the energy, the energy that goes into it. We actually have to bring up that sense of energy, um, not flailing around like Lung Pa was saying earlier today, and that, that's not energy. And that's one type of energy. But just uh, physical effort isn't what we're looking at, although there may be a physical effort aspect in terms of going against the hindrances and staying up meditating. But it's more of a the heart energy, the heart energy which is looking to purify the mind of mental obscurations and defilements. So that gives rise to sati. That gives, gives rise to mindfulness, which is a very special mental state. Uh, mindfulness is defined as a sankara, but it's a, it's a very special sankara because it, it's what we call the imperturbable kama. It falls within the Noble Eightfold Path, the kama leading to the ending of kama. A very, very special type of kama leads us toward liberation, leads us on the path. So sati is, is an indispensable faculty, an indispensable indriya on the path. And sati, uh, sati leading to samadhi, or the firm establishing of the heart, and then uh, panya, the wisdom, So there's this other word to think about. This is kusala, the wholesome. There's kusala and akusala. And kusala is also strengthening the heart. So when we practice, and especially within the space of a retreat, when we have, there's more space, perhaps uh, more time to just see the mind more clearly, is the mind kusala or akusala? And just knowing that and really taking stock of oneself. So. The, the akusala is going to really take our energy away. It's going to, it's going to harm us. And, it, and eventually it's going to lead to less faith, less conviction. And the kusala, the wholesome, things like generosity, patience, kindness, goodwill, that's really going to strengthen the heart and give us enough energy to really develop mindfulness. So the kusala is very, very important. So the akusala, what is akusala? The judgmental critical mind is akusala. 
if we give into it, if we believe it, if we buy into it, if we feed it, if we nurture that judgmental critical mind and we go around thinking this person's wrong, that person's wrong, that this person's doing that again, that's akusala and that, that makes us weaker. That's weak. And, but when we go around to thinking thoughts of goodwill towards each other, and the Buddha talks about that as the way to harmony in a community, we think of thoughts of, thoughts of goodwill, words of goodwill, actions of goodwill, that's kusala, that's strong, that's powerful. Sp uh, speaking on, speaking based on anger, that's weak. It's not powerful, but words of true goodwill, that's powerful, that's strong, so that's kusala. It's not to say we can't, we're not gonna have anger, we're not gonna have irritation, we're not gonna have craving that arises in the mind. It's not gonna say that, we're, that those things are there, that's natural. But to do our best to not act on them and to contemplate them, consider them, and ask ourselves, talk with ourselves, is that really the case? Is that person that bad for eating lettuce that way? Is that, is that situation really that bad? Or it might be directed towards ourselves. Am I really that bad? Am I really the personification of everything that is awful in the world? Am I really that bad? So, be really directed at ourselves as well that that kind of habit or that addiction to being in a low state based on telling ourselves negativities about ourselves so that's akusala that that weakens us so we do we do need to become quite strong the heart needs to become quite strong in the course of the practice, I think, and, and winter retreat is a really ideal time to do that. If used skillfully, then we can become very strong during this time. Uh, Longpo Cha, uh, he would say that to make the body strong, you move the body a lot. To make the body strong, you have to lift weights and work out and um, do a lot of physical activity to make the mind strong, the mind becomes strong through stilling, the mind becomes strong through samadhi, not, you know, through settling. So how do we do that? And in turn, that's the kusala. The kusala is gonna make the heart strong, it's gonna build up that sense of well-being and happiness and contentment in the heart. And when we gather that up, then the mind can settle because it's, it's just such a natural phenomenon of course the happy mind is easily concentrated. Of course the happy mind can settle. So the mind that is very unhappy, of course it's gonna be proliferating about how to get out of that type of suffering. But when the mind is content and happy, it doesn't have to think a lot because it's already content and happy. It doesn't have to get out of that situation. It's not gonna be trying to find an escape from that. So of course the mind is gonna be able to settle within that. But we have to be careful because through the course of the retreat, through the course of the meditation, especially if we do we start out with three weeks of group practice and we might start feeling quite happy, 
with the meditation during that time. And when we feel quite happy, we do have to be careful and caution ourselves to not become heedless. We might think, oh, everything's good now. And then we might become heedless. So when we do feel happy, then we look at that in a very sober way and say, okay, well, this, this is good. This is good. This is really good. But this too will pass. And when it's really good, we use that. Uh, we use that for more practice. We use that energy. I can't, I, and we are gonna, we're gonna mess up. We're gonna make mistakes. Get ready, get ready to fail. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay if you fail. We're not gonna ask you to leave the monastery unless the precepts get seriously compromised. That's, that's the threshold. That's, that's the standard for staying here. But if you just, if you have failures in the practice, that's to be expected. We need to learn how to learn, learn how to learn, learn how to learn from those mistakes. And it's, it takes time. Uh, it's going to be a lifetime of learning. So a lot of it is learning how to learn. I think of panya, I think of wisdom as we learn how to learn, actually. We start to see that every experience is grist for the mill uh, with the Dhamma. when we start to push ourselves a little bit in the practice and, and you know, it can get, it can get uncomfortable. We, we stay up on the observance nights, although the observance night tonight is going to be optional. We'll still have time tomorrow, uh, January 5th to, uh, really, uh, finish those last emails, make those last phone calls. And we will have time uh, to do that. And before we shut things down for the winter retreat, and so uh, tonight will be optional, but for the remainder of the retreat, then uh, we will be at least mostly following the lunar, lunar observance days. So we'll get to see what it, what is it like when we push ourselves a bit? What is it like when we go outside of our comfort zone? What is it like when we push the envelope a little bit? And then we'll get to see, we get to learn from that. Uh, what is it like when, when we have been up through the night and then we feel tired. You know, mindfulness maybe is weaker and we have to be more careful. And what's that like? Uh, or we might get to a point where we decide we're gonna try to sit for uh, more than one hour or we're gonna walk for more than one hour. And then we'll get to see what is, how is that, what is that like? What does that bring up for the mind when we don't change postures as much in the meditation practice? We sit for an hour and a half or walk for an hour and a half what is that like? We sit for two hours, walk for two hours. What is that like? And then starting to look, starting to look deeper into the mind, into the heart. And it's to be expected that old memories are going to come up, old kama. We might even relive things in a very real way uh, within the course of the meditation. And if we've had, uh, I mean, it seems these days like almost everybody has some sort of trauma traumatic memories, traumatic experiences from the past. And I, I like this term, metabolizing the trauma. So when it comes up in the meditation, it's a, it's kind of reminds me of how Lumpur Chow would say, you have to die before you die. And I didn't, I thought about that for a while. What does he mean by that? Until doing a lot of meditation during the winter retreats and kind of, at least for myself, interpreting that phrase as 
meditation really is like a death process. It's a death process because they say when people who have had near-death experiences, they say you, your life flashes before your eyes. You relive certain experiences. You, have, you, you see things you had forgotten about. So really that can happen in the meditation as well. And these things are coming up. And I do think of that as it, the mind is becoming purified. The mind is becoming clean because those things are coming up now, not at the time of death. Uh, so we die before we die, and then we have uh, that sense of emptiness or openness. So it's to be expected that, that things are going to come up. And when we do a full group schedule, it's to be expected that day two is going to be difficult. That's just, you just see that after you do so many retreats. You just see that day two, day three, that's the difficult time. If anybody's going to run off, it's day two or day three. You know, it just happens every time happened on the Thanksgiving retreat yeah, it just uh, and just to expect that just to know that that that's when because we're sincere so most of us are sincere we're putting forth effort and we want to really get into things so if we make it past that that's what I think of as entering the gate entering the mandala of the retreat and then we're in yeah. I can think of any any time I did any retreat, it was always like that, whether it was a self-retreat or a retreat, a Thanksgiving retreat or a retreat at the Bodhi tree or a Tudong, day two, day three, entering the mandala. So, so this is no different. Or there's that sense of uh, uh, going on a journey, setting sail. And so we're, we're kind of, uh, with the beginning of a winter retreat, we're, we're un, undoing the ropes, and, uh, pulling up the anchor, and actually uh, tossing the ropes aside, and then starting to drift out, getting ready for a, a long transoceanic journey. And who knows what we're going to experience during that journey, what sort of storms we might experience, what sort of waves and what sort of dangers we may experience. But we have a general direction. We have a Dhamma compass. We have those teachings of the five faculties. Um, we have these, this uh, gratitude and a sense of the, the true uh, import of the Buddha's teachings. So we have this sense of direction, sense of purpose, and then we have that to go by. Uh, we have the Four Noble Truths. So we have all of this to go by. We have right view to go by, to orient ourselves. So as we, as we set sail, as we embark on this journey, then, uh, then I just uh, want to give that encouragement and, and wish everybody well. And I just uh, feel like that's probably enough for this evening, and I'll leave it there.